Line and Sinker. It's Nescapades, a chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo library with a few pit stops along the way. We play them briefly, we judge them harshly, and we rank them. That is pretty much all you need to know. I am Steampunk Link. And I am Emmy Zero. We've got uh, we got we got some interesting ones for y'all today. Pretty unique titles in the SNES library, with with one exception. I don't actually know how many fishing <laughs> games are in there. Yeah. Last week I said I was a little worried how I would do with any of these games, but honestly, I've come away a little bit more positive on all three of these than I was expecting. These games are pretty neat. They're pretty interesting. Uh, a couple of them share some common DNA, which is odd, given that they're coming out, you know, at basically the same time. You know, three very distinct games that I had, um, I will say, an interesting time with. I didn't super enjoy a couple of them, but I, I thought they were interesting and both unique in the Super Nintendo's library and uh, just kind of exciting new things. I guess we should go ahead and get into to talking about them. Uh, so what do we what do we have first, Steampunk Link? On the docket for today, we've got Mech Warrior, Shadow Run, and Super Black Bass, and we are going to start off today with Mech Warrior. So get inside your giant robot what has a gun on it and let's get heated. <laughs> That's right. So where does this come from? What is the background of Mech Warrior and of this game in particular? The video game comes to us from publisher Activision, who we've talked about plenty of times. Uh, super great company there. <laughs> and uh, developer Beam Software. I think we might have talked about them, or actually I think I might have talked about them back in the Dino City episode. I think they worked on George Foreman KO Boxing. Well, I mean, we've actually played several Beam Software games at this point, because we've done Smash TV I believe there's at least a couple of other Beam Software uh, titles that we've done, but that's the one that's really kind of sticking out to me. But uh, that's not the whole story here, of course. Mech Warrior is the video game adaptation of Battletech, which is a wargaming franchise. It's a game played mostly with uh, pen and paper and miniatures and hexagonal tiles, I believe. Am I right in that? <laughs> I'm not really sure what kind of tabletop game original Battletech was, but that that sounds extremely plausible. Uh, I have to admit, I mostly know Battletech from like hearing things about its expansive fiction and the various video game adaptations of it. The one bit that I'm not super clear on is is the tabletop game. Okay, fair enough. Well, we talked a little bit about like the Battletech centers or whatever that they used to have that came up in an issue of Nintendo Power not too long ago that we discussed, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You informed us a little bit about what those were. So uh, if you want to know more about that, go back and listen to uh, one of those Playing With Power episodes. I wish I remembered which one it was, but this game, uh, Mech War, kind of really just like the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Battletech. This game was created by the FASA Corporation, which is, luck would have it, is also the company behind Shadowrun, which we're going to be talking about in just a bit. They were uh, an American game publisher founded by Jordan Wiseman and L. Ross Babcock III. I feel like I have to say that in a British accent. I don't know why. It just sounds fancy. British accent or like a... Like a, a you know, deep Southern, you know, El Ross Babcock third. They founded that company back in 1980, and they had nothing but $350 to their names, but uh, through sheer grit and determination, they turned that company into uh, the big power. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just kidding. Um, actually, Weissman's dad ended up joining the company who uh, was already a pretty successful businessman and rich and injected the company with a lot of cash. Oh, yeah, that'll help. Definitely. That that'll That'll do a lot for you when you're when you're trying to get your your little startup off the ground. So, uh, in addition to BattleTech and Shadowrun, the company published games like Crimson Skies and Demon World, among others. Crimson Skies was was that the the source for the cool like aerial combat game for the original Xbox, uh, High Road to Revenge. Yeah, yes, yeah. I, I like that game a lot. Would make sense that that's part of, like, an ex established brand, because the, the, the name always seemed really strange to me, because it's like, Crimson Skies, colon, High Road to Revenge. 
Anyway, so the company uh, did pretty well throughout the 80s and 90s, but shut down somewhat abruptly in 2001. They decided to remain in business for the purposes of holding the IP rights to their games and just licensing them out to other companies. Uh, a company called WizKids ended up buying the rights to Battletech. Honestly, the history of who owns what when it comes to this franchise is about as complex as the fictional history of Battletech itself. So um, I'm just going to fast forward to the end of the story. Battletech and Shadowrun are still being made into video games today. They made a, a new Battletech game, uh, like a, a turn-based strategy game for, for PCs just a couple of years ago. So, yeah. They're now being released by developer Harebrained Schemes and publisher Paradox Interactive. Yeah, and I believe that Harebrained Schemes is actually, uh, that that is Jordan Weissman's new company. He is still heavily involved in those video games, basically. That's the quick and dirty history of that one. Should we talk about the game? Sure. Yeah, let's talk about Mech Warrior. So Mech Warrior is a game that I have strong but very vague memories of playing this back when I was a kid, when it was a new game. I had a friend who, I can't remember if he owned this or if he just liked it so much that he rented it like several times consecutively. But I remember, you know, playing playing a decent bit of this as a kid. And like, that's kind of interesting to me because I feel like for as sort of fiddly as this game can be, I would have been more annoyed by it as a kid, but I guess I just had a bunch, I guess I just had a lot of patience back then. But this is a game that I guess the closest comparison we have for it on the Super Nintendo is is definitely Wing Commander. You are a pilot of a mech, a giant walking tank in the Battletech universe. You're a mercenary, essentially. You basically bounce between a kind of pretty involved set of menus where when you're back at the the kind of home base for you and the other mech pilots, you can talk to other pilots in the cantina to get leads on different jobs. Then you have a uh, garage mode where you can go to... Uh, repair and upgrade your mech between missions and eventually to buy new mechs. And then there's a job screen where after you get leads on jobs from people in, in the cantina, you can select those jobs, get information on them, like kind of what the location is and how many enemy mechs there's going to be there. Uh, and you can kind of barter for like your fee. Basically, you can kind of try to raise it and, and see how high you can go before the people offering the job uh, just refuse to pay you anymore. And once you've selected a job, you can start the mission, which, uh, you know, there's a few different kinds of mission objectives, but everything plays out from a first-person perspective, heavy use of Mode 7, so you are inside the cockpit of your mech, and you have various different weapons that you can select. Generally, the objectives involve just taking out a certain number of enemy units that are kind of encroaching on your position. Sometimes the mission is actually more about defending a base uh, and making sure that the enemies can't get close to it. Generally, these don't last very long. Generally, all of the missions, at least in the early game, which is what I played, are over in like a couple of minutes, whether that's from you dying or you destroying all the enemies. They never last very long. And they take place in a variety of different locations, deserts, industrial facilities, uh, kind of icy areas. That's that's a, a you know quick and dirty basic explanation of what this game is. I think that was a very good rundown of what this is. I didn't get too far into it. Like I said, I went to the little canteen or bar or whatever it is. I talked with um, a guy who I'm going to call Robo Fonzie. The guy with like the big robot eye. Not necessarily his portrait when he's speaking, but his sprite in the bar just kind of resembled Fonzie from Happy Days to me. So he will always be just a cyborg Fonzie to me. Robo Fonzie. Yeah, he kind of gives you a, a breakdown of what's going on in the game, helps you sort of get started, which I thought was a cool feature. The game does kind of, you know, help you figure out what you're doing if all of the menus are a little bit daunting, which they were a little bit to me, though. I, I think that they do a pretty good job of, you know, like the, the different menus are presented as screens and things that you don't have access to yet are just like staticked out, which, you know, kind of limits 
the amount of options that the game drops on you from the outset, which I think is pretty clever, and, and I think that's pretty good design. It is, yeah. I think this game does a lot better of doing that same sort of loop that Starfighter did. Well, Wing Commander. Wing Commander did. Why do I keep wanting to call it Starfighter? I did this before we started recording, too. I don't know. I don't know why I keep wanting to call it Starfighter. Wing Commander. Um, no, I think it does its thing on the Super Nintendo a lot better than Wing Commander did on the Super Nintendo. When you get into the battle sequences, there's a lot going on. One button will bring up like the map view and one button activates your jump jets and the, there's a lot. And I kind of wish that maybe they'd had like some kind of tutorialization happening for the first fight, even though the first battle is very, very easy. One thing that's strange is there is a practice mode you can go into uh, from the main title screen of the game. But that's just sort of like an endless horde mode that doesn't explain anything. So it's like, I'm not sure why this is there or like what purpose they thought it was serving. It's not really helpful as like a means of practicing as far as I can tell. The first time I booted it up, that is what I selected because I thought it's like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll try that out. Maybe this is a good way of getting a, a sort of vertical slice of the game. And yeah, it just dropped me into a battle that I was completely overwhelmed by. And I immediately bounced off this game. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to be able to play this. Like, I was worried this was going to be like Koei strategy territory for me of like just completely impenetrable gameplay. But I gave the game another shot and did not choose practice this time and just did um, the regular story mode. And things clicked a lot more for me at that point. Honestly, they shouldn't call it practice. They should just call it like endless mode or challenge mode or something like that. Quick battle or something, you know, if you go in there thinking that like this is going to show you the ropes, it's just going to overwhelm you and it could severely taint your impressions of this game from the outset. That does not make a good first impression for sure. No. In the comparison of this to Wing Commander, like, definitely the structures are similar. Like Wing Commander, this is also uh, an adaptation of a PC game. There was a, a MechWarrior game in 1989 that this is vaguely based on, but this is a much more kind of liberal adaptation of it to the Super Nintendo than Wing Commander was. And the graphics here, the way everything is set up actually works like it's all like there is a lot going on definitely but it is readable and like it is possible to kind of just sort of slip into how this game functions and and get into it yeah i was definitely able to at least wrap my head around how the action controls in this game than i was in wing commander so i mean it, it, i gotta give it points for that it definitely adapts its control scheme to the Super NES better than I think uh, Wing Commander did. It's, it's almost not fair because it's in outer space. It's a game that has to happen on three axes, which is not the Super NES' strong suit at all. You know, where this game, you know, is mostly just happening on two axes. If this game has anything... I mean, it, the, the way in which this game has a third axis is almost more like Doom or something than than it is like a, a flight sim. You know, like, things can be... Like, mechs can hover in the air above you and you can hover, but ultimately, you know, you have a pretty wide angle for, like, where you can aim. A lot of your weapons lock on. Generally, if you're going to be in, like, a really bad situation here, just not being able to see your enemy or, like, aim at them is not going to be the problem. To, to keep going with the Wing Commander comparison, you know, that felt like a game that was just dragged kicking and screaming onto this console. <laughs> where this game, it feels like they probably saw things in it that were like, hey, this would be good for MechWarrior. And they weren't wrong. Like, the Mode 7 thing works pretty well for MechWarrior. Like, the 3D perspective, you know, it, it, it chugs a little bit, but it's actually pretty impressive for a game of this vintage. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty smooth. I never felt like it was getting in the way of me being able to play, you know? If you are somebody who has a stake in that franchise and you see what the Super NES can do, you know, you can start connecting the dots and saying, hey, we could do this on the Super NES. And I and I think we can find ways to do it well. So, you know, it, it doesn't feel like it was just forced onto the system because it's a popular franchise and we have to have a game with that title on it available in stores. A good effort was put into making this game work on the Super NES. And I do think that it mostly does. Again, I don't think this is a game for me. You know, this kind of stuff has never really been my cup of tea at all. But I, I appreciate what they've done here. I think the controls still could have used a little bit of work, though I honestly don't know like what the right way of doing that sort of control scheme on the Super NES. I don't know what that looks like, though 
I would have added maybe the ability to strafe left and right by hitting L and R. That was really the thing that I feel like was missing for me was like, I, I didn't feel like they were necessarily using the controller to like its full advantage. And yeah, strafing would have been really nice in a bunch of cases here. I will say there was one kind of repeated instance in which the mode seven maybe got in the way a little bit. The way that that works with the, the totally flat bitmaps, there was a thing I ran into in several missions where I would get into the mission enemies would be coming at me and i would i would walk forward to to try to into their range and just step on like a landmine that would blow up one of my next leg like it didn't end the mission it just made me unable to move like i could still turn but i was essentially at that point just like you know a turret basically uh and i don't have a problem with that as a game mechanic but i do feel like the landmines are pretty hard to read on the screen. Like they are pretty, di- like if there are stage hazards, they are pretty difficult to to detect in the mode seven ground image. And I kind of wish they had tried to make those like a little bit more visible. You know, even if it had kind of lowered the difficulty a little, I feel like it would have helped me in some cases. That's kind of a nitpick, but it is a thing that did happen. So I can't say that like everything about this works, but yeah, in general, I, I think it, it pretty much does. They put forth a really good effort to make this work on the Super Nintendo, and, and it, I think it succeeds in a lot more ways than it fails. I would have liked to see a little more of this game to kind of see what it's like to, you know, be able to get enough money to to buy a new mech and see sort of like what new options that opens up for you. But, you know, from kind of the way we do this show here, that didn't really work out for me this time, uh, which is a bit of a shame. But yeah, I, I think this is a neat game. And I think that if you're if you're interested in this type of game, it's kind of cool to see how they made this work on the Super Nintendo. I don't really have anything else to say, though. So what do you say we go to the list and try to find a place for it? I think right out of the gate, you know, we could say an easy ceiling for this would be Wing Commander. We've been comparing this to Wing Commander constantly and talking about how it's it's a far greater success than that is. So, yeah, uh, Wing Commander right now is at number 93. So, yeah, I'd say that's a good floor for this. So let's kind of see where where we want to go up from there. Or Yeah, floor. Did I say ceiling? I probably said ceiling. I meant floor. I'm trying to f- decide where I think the ceiling for this one would be. Uh, you know, kind of give us a range here. Unfortunately, Wing Commander is the only easy direct comparison for this game, and we spent basically this entire segment talking about how it's better than that. Like, I think I might put this above Firepower 2000 at 73. Yeah, I think that's fair. Maybe above the John Maddens at 69 and 70? How do you think this compares to Pilot Wings? I mean, obviously there's a lot more going on in this game than there is in Pilot Wings. Yeah. Pilot Wings is a pretty breezy pick-up-and-play sort of game, although, you know, it's it's pretty challenging in its own right, though, too. And not always for the right reasons. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, I might say it could probably go above Pilot Wings, unless you want to make an argument that it shouldn't. I, I don't think I would. I think that there's more going on in this game than Pilot Wings. I think it's kind of a, a meatier experience. You know what I would not put this above, I think, is Desert Strike. I think Desert Strike might be the ceiling. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think they're actually pretty good comparisons, but I I do think that Desert Strike is is probably a better game than this. I think it is managing its game design in a way that's that's more fun and effective. Not a whole lot of room between that and Pilot Wings. Uh, Desert Strike is at 64. Yeah, we got Final Fantasy Mystic Quest below it at 65. How do you feel about that one? Final Fantasy Mystic Quest is kind of charming. Uh, and it is it is a, a nice game to look at and and to listen to, uh, but there's just not really a lot going on in it. I think just purely based on the type of game it is, I'd probably be more likely to play more of Final Fantasy Mystic Quest than I would of, of Mech Warrior. But I don't know if I could really necessarily say it's a better game than it. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think I'm kind of with you. Like, I, I would definitely be more inclined to play Final Fantasy Mystic Quest myself, but I think for the kind of game that it is, Mech Warrior is maybe a greater success than Final Fantasy Mystic Quest. Well, okay, then that seems like a pretty good answer then. So what do you say we put Mech Warrior right below Desert Strike, Return to the Gulf, at uh, our new number 65 position? All right. So, hey, that's a pretty good showing for Mech Warrior, I think. And, uh, yeah, you know, for, for, you know, coming from 
two people who well, I mean you you've got a little more love for this franchise I think than I do uh, and I've just I've just never been a giant robot person outside of Power Rangers I mean, I will say I, I love giant robots, but I really mostly tend to like Japanese giant robots. American mech stuff, Western mech stuff tends to be pretty different. Like the mechs and mech warrior are truly big walking tanks. And that's cool, but it's not quite entirely my thing. So even with me, you know, this isn't a hundred percent in my wheelhouse, but I do think it's a good game. Yeah, Mech Warrior, come back when your giant robot tanks are in the shape of dinosaurs that can transform and combine to form a bigger dinosaur, okay? Yeah, that's what you need. What do you say we move on to our other <laughs> uh tabletop game adaptation <laughs> made by Beam Software? Uh Shadow Run. <laughs> yeah, let's let's uh, let's run some shadows. Like you said, this is another game uh, based on a property from FASA Corporation, and this is another game developed by Beam. Oddly enough, not a game published by Activision, but by Data East. That might be the weirdest thing about this, is that with all the connective tissue these two games share, uh, they have different publishers. Yeah, I'm not really sure how that works out. And honestly, Data East seems like kind of a strange publisher for something like this. And it is important also to note that as far as I could tell, at least... There was no, even though these were both made by Beam Software, it doesn't seem like there was actually any personnel overlap between MechWarrior and Shadowrun. We talked a little bit about the world of Shadowrun, or I, th I think more specifically, you talked a little bit about the world of Shadowrun in a recent Playing With Power episode that we did. So this is an RPG, but it's a pretty different RPG from what you'd expect on the Super Nintendo. I, I don't know if we've really seen anything much like this one. You control one character for the most part. You're going around. Uh, you've just, uh, I think his name is Jack. Yeah, Jack Armitage, which is pretty cool. Pretty cool cyberpunk name. Yeah, you wake up in a morgue because uh, some folks brought you in there because your brain had been fried and you flatlined. Cyberpunk. You're not dead, but you have no memory of who you are or how you got there, which, you know, hey, that's a good way to start a video game because, you know, you're you're the player going in and you don't know who this person is. So, they, hey, they're in the same boat you are. So you have good reason to ask people about, hey, how on earth does the place in which I live work? Yep, it's it's a classic setup for a reason. Yeah, you can go around, you can examine things, and you can shoot things. Actually, it's surprisingly non-modular for an RPG on the Super Nintendo. You have a menu screen, and you have a sort of isometric view of whatever environment you happen to be in. And that's pretty much it. The game doesn't have like a, a third mode for battle, which I think is to its detriment, but we'll get there. I want to talk about what I think works about this game first. This game is a lot about investigating, but also going around and talking to people. And when you do, there will be certain words that are highlighted. And when a word is highlighted, it sort of gets added to your list of things that you can ask people about. And it's an interesting sort of lock and key system in which, you know, you're going around, you're talking to people, you're getting these keywords, you're finding out about these concepts that you can then go and ask other people about, and they might be able to, you know, shed some light on the concept for you, which may open up more keywords. I like that system a lot. I think that's really neat. And I do like the way that you investigate. I'm not crazy about the sort of cursor mode that you have to go into to open most doors or pick up items. I really wish that they had, you know, they, this game, it feels like it should have been a PC game or at the very least should have had SNES mouse support, which I do not think it does. No, and it's it's strange, too, because it's like, okay, so you move the character around uh, with the control pad. That feels pretty much normal, like it would in, in any game with this sort of perspective. But yeah, in order to interact with anything, even if you're right next to it, you have to press another button to bring up a, a cursor and click on it. And then it'll give you a, a list of options for like what you can do with it. Usually just like examine and use, but sometimes you can also pick stuff up. There is no situation I personally found playing this game where that was more useful than just having like a context sensitive action button where like if you were to just stand next to a thing and then press the button it just gives you it just either does the thing or it gives you a list of options then like having to do that extra step in the middle with the cursor never felt good i got used to it but it wasn't ever a thing that i felt like there was any point to 
I will say in the game's defense, the actions that you typically have after you've, you know, clicked on something with the cursor are to examine it with the L button or to interact with it. Like, you know, if it's a door, you can open it or it's an object, you can pick it up with R. I think you can just press those two buttons to immediately do the thing if you're close enough to the object. Really? Okay, I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. I think so, but you have to know that it is something that you can interact with. So a lot of times you're still going to be using the cursor just to sort of pixel hunt and see what things are in the room that you can interact with and then go over there and use L or R to interact with them in, in you know, whichever way is most appropriate. But yeah, I really wish that anytime you were near something you could interact with, it would just bring up a contextual menu saying, hey, do you want to examine this with this button or do you want to pick this up or, or do the thing right. with this button? It feels like trying to put a PC game <laughs> on a console. Which is doubly strange because this is not an adaptation of a PC game. This was made for the ground up for the Super Nintendo. There is a Shadowrun game for the Genesis that came out at the same time as this, which is a completely different game that feels much more like a console game. And then, speaking to the wonkiness with the cursor, that brings us to the combat in this game, which also relies on a cursor and lining it up with the bad guy and firing at them. And uh, that's where things get pretty bad because you really have to leave yourself open to just getting shot when you're shooting back at an enemy. And I'm not necessarily saying that like it should have just been a straight up turn based RPG like Final Fantasy or anything like that. But like, what if like engaging in a battle took you into like a sequence in which you're in like a top down perspective, like one screen kind of shooter, maybe almost like Smash TV. That could have been cool. Yeah, I think that would have been good. I think even just changing into like a grid based like strategy game mode at that point would have been fine, too. The The thing that you do need to understand about this is like when you go into combat there are a lot of just like random offices in this game you can go into and there will just be dudes in there that want to shoot at you you press a different button to bring up a different cursor that is like a, a crosshair and then you kind of just have to hover that over the enemy and press the fire button and then behind the scenes the game is rolling dice to see whether you hit or not so you're not going to hit every shot and it's going to do variable damage so uh, you know Combat can just tend to be this sort of like tedious war of attrition thing where you're standing on sort of one side of a room and the, you know, people that are shooting at you are on the other side and you're just kind of moving the cursor from guy to guy as they go down and hoping that you get them before they get you. And this is the thing that I really don't like about this game is how it does incorporate the dice rolls of a turn-based RPG like Final Fantasy with the actual, you know, like, oh, you have to physically do a thing to perform this action. And it's like, I, I feel like you should have just picked one, you know, like if shooting this guy relies on me maneuvering a cursor, you know, and lining it up while leaving myself vulnerable to enemy fire, you know, in order to, to line it up and the, the enemy is going to move, meaning I have to reposition the cursor every time I fire, maybe just make it a given that I'm going to hit him every time I hit the trigger. <laughs> You know, as long as the cursor's on him. Or just take the cursor out of it completely and just have battles be at a dice roll. You know, maybe just when you walk into a room full of bad guys, you have the option now. Hey, are you going to fight or are you going to just run away? And then let the game roll some dice, see how you do. And then based on that, say, OK, do you want to keep fighting or do you want to run away now? You know, or do things like that. And I, I have to assume that a lot of this stuff was done to kind of try to capture the feel of a tabletop role playing game. But I don't really think it's effective here. I think it mostly is just more annoying than it should be. And I don't think it really plays to the strengths of the medium. So, yeah, I mean, one thing that is worth noting is that it is always possible to just like leave <laughs> any room where there's, like, combat going on. You know, the game doesn't really signpost this at all, but basically from the beginning, if you know where to go to, to find your character's apartment which becomes essentially kind of a home base. It has a bed you can sleep in, which is the w place you go to to save your game and to level up your character once you have enough karma points, which is 
what you get for killing enemies hilariously. Uh, and also, when you sleep, it does refill your health completely. So you're never necessarily, at least in the early game, you're not necessarily in a, a situation where you're just gonna die uh, unless you're, you're you know, pretty, pretty unlucky with, like, random people shooting at you out in the street, which does also happen. But yeah, it's just like... You look at it and you go like, this is really the best you could come up with for, for how to do this major mechanic in the game here. And it's disappointing because this is like really close to being a game that I'm like, this is a really easy recommendation for almost anybody who's a fan of old RPGs. Like this is something really different. This is an experience you're not going to get on in, in most other RPGs on the SNES. And uh, yeah, like MechWarrior before it, it does a lot of things right. And you know, I think I'm a little bit more disappointed by Shadowrun because it is closer to something that I would actually just pick up and play of my own accord because it's it's kind of my jam. I do think, you know, it, it's a situation in which you can, you know, get used to the wonky controls. And, you know, like I didn't get very far in the game. I died pretty early on. But, you know, and that was disappointing. But I also realized like, OK, I did a lot of stuff, but I also did a lot of stuff that I didn't really need to do because I wasn't quite sure wh where I was going with this or like how the game yeah. sort of wanted me to go because the game doesn't really guidepost you like super well in the early game. Like I went around talking to a bunch of random folks before I finally went down the alley where the guy gets shot and I'm supposed to pick up his gun. Uh huh. So after I died, I was like, well, shoot, I did all of this stuff. But then I realized like. Except all I actually needed to do was follow that guy and pick up his gun. And then I'm almost at the point where I died. So, right. Yeah, this is going to be a real weird comparison, but it's almost like the game, the, the puzzle game, The Witness. Oh, yeah, I could see that. Your progression in the game isn't based so much on gaining a new ability, but learning a new aspect of the world that you personally now know that you can bring into future runs of the game, which I don't think is a bad thing. No, totally. Yeah, I mean, the, the, just to be um, very clear about kind of what the structure of this game is, it is pretty open. It's basically you wake up in the morgue, you go outside, you have one kind of forced conversation with, with a character that comes up to you right then. But after that, you're kind of just set loose in this little kind of open world that has a few different sort of locations you can visit in. And, uh, you know, there, there are different people to talk to, different keywords you can add to your list. And eventually you kind of, you know, figure out what goals there are you can work towards. You know, like, for example, there's a whole thing that becomes apparent that there's a uh, like a concert or like a club that you are being denied entry to because you don't have a ticket to it. And, you know, you can talk to a guy in a bar that mentions that there's like a scalper that was selling tickets, but that he died. So there might be a ticket out there where he died. The game never like you know, sits you down and it's like, okay, this is your first quest. This is what you need to do to progress here. Which, yeah, means that once you know what you're doing, you can do a bunch of stuff very quickly. You just have to kind of suss it out. It's neat, but I can also see where this would be really frustrating for somebody trying to come into it for the first time. But yeah, overall, I think this is a really neat game. I wasn't sure if I was going to take to it at all, but I, I think it's pretty cool. Again, I think this is mostly doing it right. It's just disappointing that it hangs on to a lot of very PC-type RPG conventions and just doesn't adapt well for being on a console. I agree, very much so. Um, did you talk to the dog? The dog was fun. The creepy dog in the alley? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I did. That's a good hook, I think. Like, as soon as you pick up the gun from the guy, there's a creepy dog with glowing eyes that talks to you and uh, is like, bring me three items. <laughs> uh, it's good. It's good. Uh, but yeah, so this game is, is interesting. I will say, uh, I was curious to see kind of what the manual for this game looked like. And I, I found a copy of it online, and it is actually pretty good at explaining like the core concepts of this game but i do really pity anybody that rented this game back in the day and uh didn't get the manual and just had no idea what they were doing i can see running into a brick wall with this really fast if you just don't know where to go or what to do i do want to acknowledge that uh there are a couple of elements of this that we didn't get to because we only played the beginning of the game we did not get to see the magic system and we also 
also did not get to uh, hire any other shadow runners as as party members. There's like a bunch of other characters that all fall into like either like a a uh, uh, you know a, an attack, defense, or magic type that you can hire. And there's also a very extensive mini game for hacking the essentially this game's version of the internet, the Matrix, which turns into kind of like a turn-based maze puzzle game basically. Uh, we didn't get to see any of that, so I, we can't comment on any of that stuff. I did read a, a little bit of a guide on this one on GameFAQs, and so I read a little bit on the whole thing about hiring other shadow runners or whatever they call them. Basically, it sounded like you can track these folks down, you can hire them, and, and they'll help you out. But if you don't want to engage with any of that, you don't really have to. And I thought that sort of free form thing was pretty awesome as well like again the game gives you a lot of freedom and i think that's very cool i guess uh that being said uh let's go to the list right and see where to put this one yeah and, and just like mech warrior before it i think i've got another good place to start from is, is sort of a floor for this draken is another game that feels like it should have been a pc game but i feel like shadow run is doing a much better job of taking what it is and and making it into a Super NES compatible game for as much as we criticized it for having a cursor and things like that. I still think it does a lot of things right. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a lot more than I think Draken at number 63 did. I mean, I'll say this. Um, I have confidence based on what I played of Shadowrun that this game holds together over the course of its its runtime. I do not have that confidence about Draken. Yeah, so I would say uh, let's go up from there. Honestly, I, I would go up a little bit further. Like, it isn't until we hit, like, Super Double Dragon at 55 that I start wondering, like, ooh, I don't know if I could in good conscience go any further than that. But how do you feel about that comparison? I agree. Um, I'm not sure. I think Super Double Dragon is pretty solid, and I don't necessarily think I would go up from there. Or if I did, I would probably only go up, like, one above it to Rampart, which, you know, uh, I think is is an okay comparison in some ways. But, yeah, I, I mean, I think I would definitively say I, would, I find this a better and more interesting game than Batman Returns at 56. Looking at Rampart, though, okay, so I think Sonic Blast Man is absolutely the ceiling. I would not put it above Sonic Blast Man at 53. Rampart and Super Double Dragon, I'm a little bit torn on. I could almost see this going above either of those or both of those. What do you think? Do you think that there's a good argument for saying, no, this absolutely cannot go above Rampart or Super Double Dragon? I would say that I think Rampart is... You know, for one thing, it, it has, uh, you know, a couple of different game modes that are doing some different kind of interesting stuff with its basic gameplay mechanics. But also, it's just a, it's a, it's a very simple game in some ways. It's it's kind of tough to compare that to uh, to, to Shadowrun, which is honestly a, a pretty involved and <laughs> pretty involved game. But, you know, I, I kind of admire I just admire the ambition of Shadowrun so much and and the uniqueness of it on the Super Nintendo uh, that I could maybe give it an edge over Rampart, even though I don't think that overall, like in terms of, you know, the, the controls and the kind of the basic philosophy behind how the game is set up, I don't know that I think it actually works quite as well on like a moment-to-moment -moment play level as Rampart does. But I'm just, the thing that's kind of tricky for me about it is that despite the fact that we had quite a bit of negative stuff to say about Shadowrun, I come away with it from it with a very overall positive impression. Oh yeah, me too. Me too. Definitely. So I, I think it's just such a thing that's like more than the sum of its parts that, you know what? I could, I, yeah, let's, let's put it above Rampart. Okay. You, you're sure. You're sure about that. You're good. I'm good with that. Yeah. So uh, this will be our new number 54. Good showing, really, for for FASA and Beam Software this episode, honestly. Well done, Shadowrun. That rhymed. I'm a poet and wasn't aware. <laughs> With all that out of the way, I guess we'll we'll go to that other great FASA-based board game. No, it's, uh, it's a fishing game. It's, it's Super Black Bass. Black Bass. Who made Super Black Bass? Uh, Hot B made Super Black Bass. We talked about them back when we talked about uh, Shanghai 2 in the Sim Earth episode. This was published by Hot B USA, which I'm guessing is just a subsidiary that they created over here to publish their games from Japan. 
Though oddly enough, according to Moby Games, uh, Hot B USA's last published title was a game called Graffiti Kingdom, which was developed by Taito. Interesting. I'm kind of surprised they were publishing non-Hot B stuff over here, but okay. So, yeah, that's that's uh, Super Black Bass. It's a fishing game. Uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. You are fishing for the elusive black bass, and you're just trying to get the most bass and the biggest bass. Yeah, yeah, gotta... Got to get that big black bass. Uh, <laughs> that sounded bad. You know, you, you turn on this game and you, you hear that, that fiddle. It is distinctly not a violin. That is definitely a fiddle. That's definitely a fiddle, yeah. <laughs> and you're just like, yep, this sounds like the music I would expect from a fishing game, sure. Just to zoom out a little bit and explain kind of the, the overall structure of this game. You're given a, you know, a set period of time in which to go out and catch as many fish as you as you can. Uh, you are then going to be graded on kind of the total weight of the fish that you that you collected. And basically you're you're given an area to move around in with an overhead view of a little motorboat. And the lake that you're on is really kind of marked out with a bunch of different zones. Like there's visibly shallow water, deeper water. There's, you know, areas that have a lot of plants in them. And once you get to the area that you want to be at, you press a, you press a button to go into the fishing mode, which gives you a kind of behind the back view of your fisherman, where you can select the uh, what kind of lure you want to use. There's a bunch of different types of lures. And when you hit the button to actually cast your line, you get uh, kind of a golf game style meter where the meter kind of charges up on its own and you press a button uh, when it's at the strength that you want to do your cast. Uh, you can also do like an overhead view of the area that you're in to check out what's out there and kind of aim before you cast. And then once once you've got your, your line out, you can move it around, you can reel it back in, and this is a much more zoomed-in view at this point where you can see what fish are in the water, and you can kind of try to move your lure towards them to kind of tempt them. Once you hook a fish, uh, you, you have to, to reel it in. Uh, you have to make sure that, you know, the fish doesn't escape. Yeah, and uh, also you can only, at least for this first uh, fishing tournament, which was the only one that I did because I didn't get very far in the game, uh, you can only catch five at a time, so anything after five, you have to start throwing the small ones back. You can pretty much just kind of keep trying and keep trying to get bigger and bigger fish. And, uh, you know, you can test out the lures. Some of them will stay pretty close to the top of the water. Some will sink a little bit as you reel it in. Some will sink and will only rise as you reel it in. So, you know, a lot of different behaviors for the different lures. And, and um, so, you know, the, the game kind of becomes experimenting with like, okay, you know, can I get the fish to, to bite, you know, this lure? You know, do I need to move it in this certain way to, you know, get their attention? Will this spook them away? I don't know. I, so, I'm not a big fisherman person um i've maybe done it a couple of times in my youth and never caught anything and my impression of fishing games has always been like is, is the barrier to entry when it comes to fishing in the real world so high that a fishing game would be appealing to anybody who wouldn't just prefer to just go out and go actual fishing I'm still not entirely sure, but uh, there sure are a lot of fishing games out there. And, you know, and I will say, I, I booted this one up, started playing it a little bit. Um, at first, I was just like, well, this is going like a lot of my real fishing trips do. I have not even seen a fish, let alone caught one. Then I realized, OK, the game is actually trying to give me a few hints here. Like when you bring up the menu screen, it'll say like, hey, sometimes fish like being near plants because they oxygenate the water and stuff. And it's like, oh, it's probably telling me that I should go into the part of the lake where there's green things. And and I did. And then, hey, there's fish there. So, you know, I started fishing. I started testing out different lures, trying to, you know, get some fish. And I caught a few. And then I was like, hey, you know what? This is all right. This is okay. This is kind of an okay, chill experience. I'm kind of enjoying this now. I got pretty good at catching some smaller black bass. I think I caught like one that was like 3.7 pounds or something like that. And it was still kind of a runt. Most of them were like 
less than two pounds, I think. But I could kind of see, you know, like, okay, so in the water, you can sort of see like shadows of the, the deeper of the fish that are in there deeper. Sometimes you'll see like dirt and mud kicking up in the water, which, you know, probably indicates that like there's a bigger fish near the bottom of the riverbed. I could not figure out what the magic combination of lure and movement was to get their attention. You know, I, I tried using like a lot of the, the lures that tend to sink to the bottom, um, you know, figuring like, well, if they're at the bottom of the lake, that's probably where I need my lure to be. But I just I could not get them to they, I just couldn't get any interest there. So I also lost a few lures on some of the reeds. So I had to like cut the line <laughs> Just leave it behind, which is always kind of a bummer. But um, I went from being bored to being like, okay, this is kind of neat to being bored again. As I just I could not figure out what I was supposed to do to land these bigger fish because it just seemed obvious, like getting one of these big guys so I can see their shadows at the bottom is probably what I want to do in order to win this tournament and move on to the next stage. But yeah, I just couldn't figure it out. And I didn't feel like I was really getting any hints as to like what I might have been doing wrong or if like there was some kind of RNG involved or what I, I didn't know. Uh, I had a pretty similar experience, actually a pretty similar arc there of, you know, boredom to interest to boredom again. There's quite a bit here, uh, but I do think you really need to want this experience of fishing to dig deep enough into it to kind of learn what is, what is going on there and get past that that hump that you and I experienced there. Yeah, I, I feel like there's a reason why fishing works best as a mini game in other bigger experiences, right? I mean, I, I'll say this. Uh, my general feeling about fishing in video games is that, like, I'm very unlike... It, it's it's basically, like, the same kind of deal as with, like, uh, you know, pool. So, like, I am not very likely to pick up a game that is just a fishing game or just a pool game or like just a card game or whatever. But if you put one of those things into a, another game as, as a, like a very full featured mini game, I'll probably spend quite a bit of time with it. Like I did that with the extensive fishing mini games in Yakuza zero and final fantasy 15. I'm there for that, but I don't really think, for whatever reason, that fishing on its own in a video game does enough for me to really want to dig into that. You know, the the more you get into this one, it becomes clear that this is a very full-featured game. This is, this is something that, you know, stands on its own. I just don't really have the personal interest in the subject enough to, to get into it. Yeah, and I just think, you know, fishing, it's always walking this thin line of being like a good simulation, but also like not losing the more casual players who might come to it. And, and yeah, that, that's, it, that's probably a hard line to walk. I mean, I got some entertainment out of this. I did find myself in, enjoying this to some extent for a while. So, I mean, if you're really into fishing games, this is probably a pretty good one. Yeah. Uh, I think that's fair. But yeah, ultimately it, it does come down in, in kind of a similar way to other kind of, sports games that we've played where like I can recognize the craft but I can't really say that I, it does enough for me to bring me in and with that do we want to head over to the list I think so yeah boy where to start with this one Oh, that's tough. We got we got Super Bowling at 103, which it's kind of a limited game for a niche sport that, you know, I don't know why you wouldn't just go out and go bowling if you want to go bowling that bad. But also, like, it was fine and we, we enjoyed ourselves with it. I think there's probably more to this one than there was to Super Bowling. Like, I think you could probably sit with this one longer. But was it more fun? I mean, not for me personally, but I like bowling more than I like fishing. And I think that bowling just it, it translates in a very direct easy way to a video game you know you, you know yeah i guess you know given that i could probably see this going above super bowling i do not think this goes above super baseball simulator 1000 at 101 no i i agree with that so i guess the only thing that's really a question here is jimmy connor's pro tennis tour at 102 uh do you think this goes above or below that well, I was about to ask, uh, does your fisherman wear a cool pink windbreaker jacket? But that's the other tennis game, isn't it? It's David Crane's Amazing Tennis, yeah. So that doesn't even apply here. Um, I do not remember enough about Jimmy Connor's Pro Tennis Tour to definitively say. But to be honest, I will probably forget about this game about as quickly, really. So I think based on our discussion, then, 
probably let's just go ahead and put this right above Super Bowling. Okay. I think that that feels good to me. All right. So congratulations, Super Black Bass number 103. Yeah. I mean, for a game that neither of us really have, uh, you know, <laughs> much in the way of feelings about, I, I think it actually did pretty well for itself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, on a list that now has 187 games on it. Yeah, Zooks. That's a lot of games. That is a lot of games. We're we're getting really near the 200 mark here. We are. Yeah. That's exciting because that, that's like, oh, wow, we're like we're, we're making it through this. It's kind of we are. Yeah, significantly. It's kind of nuts to think like when we first started and we didn't even have a list. We're just, you know, putting things up arbitrarily because we only have like a couple of games that we've talked about. Like and, and now here we are like in a nearly 200 game long list. Uh, wow. Uh, it makes me feel good about, you know, as we as we go forward, you know, being able to kind of do justice to these games, because I think we're now at a point where we can have these kind of really granular discussions. And as we move forward, we're, we're almost through the month of May of 1993. Yeah, not a ton of games for May. So we've only got four more games for May, which means that we are going to break it up a little more than we have been doing. We're only going to do two games next next time. So uh, Steampunk Link, what do we have for, for next episode? So next time we've got Super Turrican and Tasmania. That slobbery Looney Tune boy. We're gonna we're gonna be all about him. Taz was weirdly popular back in the nineties. He really had a moment in the mid nineties. I can't really explain it, but he was everywhere. He had his own cartoon show, and that's what this game is gonna be. And I I think if if I'm remembering correctly, this game I think is pretty weird. I'm excited. I don't really know anything about it. Yeah, um, there there were two Tasmania games, one on the Genesis and one on the Super Nintendo. I think the Genesis was more your just side-scrolling thing. I think this one is like a first-person perspective, like... Really? On rails kind of thing, I think. Oh, man. Okay. I guess we'll see. That's interesting. Yeah, please join us next time for that. A game that I now have no idea what to expect from. <laughs> yeah. And also Super Turrican will be there, too. Yes. <laughs> Which, you know, is probably going to be fine. But yeah, and until next time, I'm Emmy Zero. I'm Steampunk Link. Remember, dog controls your destiny. Play aloud. Our intro-outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoaxe, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty-free at technoaxe.com. That's T-E-K-N-O-A-X-E dot com. Actually, it's funny you say that because when I encountered that dog, I immediately took a screenshot of it because I was like, "This, there's a good <laughs> chance this is going to be the cover. Yep. <laughs> Well, yeah, I say, um, my name is, what, what What the hell accent was that? I don't even know where I'm doing that. I don't know what that was. <laughs> I, I, I need I think, a mint I julep think... over here. It's too hot. I need a mint julep over here. My goodness. Oh, gracious yeah, me. There... <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop that now. <clears throat>